Good morning, somebody. (laughs) Well, you're kind of paying attention, aren't you? Mercy. Mercy is defined in the dictionary as a refraining from harming or punishing offenders, enemies, persons in one's power. It is hopefully used frequently in the affairs of men in this world, so filled with trouble. Mercy has a place and time in this world, and indeed it is limited by the lives of those so inclined to practice it. However, with the Lord God, it has eternal consequences, and it is not limited by either time or space. We know from the scriptures that the Lord on Judgment Day will punish those who offend God with their lives for their rejection of him, his works, standards, and truth, outrightly declaring themselves as his enemies, denying his existence to their own destruction. The actual and terrible truth is that that has been all of us. We have all deserved his condemnation, being guilty of the same failings. In Ephesians 2.4, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is our treasure, granted to us by the gift of faith, the product of both the steadfast love and mercy of God. Christ on the cross is where justice and mercy meet. Christ satisfying God's justice, and now mercy has been extended to those saved by his incomparable work. The truth of this is not new to us, we brothers and sisters, the children of God. It has been revealed to us in clarity by the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is one with the Father and the Son. It is the product of the faith granted to us, which is in Hebrews 11:1 called, even better, defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And here we stand, a people of faith. This is not something we're unfamiliar with, but for a lot of young people, a brief recap. God knew we were going to fall, that we would need a redeemer before creation began. So why go through all the pain and sorrow of this world? Because in the fall, while innocence was lost, we gained the knowledge of good and evil, making us more in his image. The problem was and is that we failed to use that knowledge in a way that glorified God. What we are speaking of here is purpose. Why then did God make us in the first place? This question and its answer is found in the first question of the shorter catechism. Someone know the response to that? What is the chief end of man? Any volunteers? And glorify God and enjoy him forever. Thank you. Isaiah 43, 7 speaks clearly to this, saying, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's why we're here, to glorify God. It's that simple. 
The difficulty we face is how well we accomplish the glorifying of God. We know well our example is Christ, our risen Lord, who in every point in his work here sought to do one thing and one thing only, to seek and to do his Father's will. He never spoke a single word that was not directed by his Father in the fullness of the Holy Spirit beyond what he was given to say. As we find in John 8, 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. It almost goes without saying that the Lord Jesus did completely glorify the Father. We know each of us in our hearts how we fall so short in our own lives of so glorifying each and every day. But God, who knows our frailty completely, has demonstrated over and over again how we may be made right before him with his mercies, which are new every morning. Lamentations 2, or 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Our Father knew before creation that he must demonstrate both his love and mercy to this sad condition of man. And we know the truth of it in the redemptive work wrought by Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. And not just there only, but this love and mercy is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives each and every day until Christ returns. Now before we go into a lot of verses that speak of the mercy of God, I have two rabbit trails to chase. The first one is the mercy seat. It is first mentioned in Exodus 25, 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Whenever this is mentioned as a specific thing, if you look at the Hebrew and Chaldee Dictionary in Strong's Concordance, it is rendered to be a lid. But this usage is taken from another root word, which means, and it's a list, to cover, to expiate or condone, appease, make atonement, cleanse, disannul, forgive, be merciful, pacify, pardon, put away, purge, put off, reconcile, all of that encompassed in the mercy of God. We know that when in Numbers 7:89 Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. And here the Lord God spoke to him. The lid as a cover speaks of our sins being covered and the manifestation of God and his voice speaking from between and above the cherubim demonstrates the ongoing extension of mercy to mankind, yet not perfectly completed until Christ became the sacrifice acceptable to God and would never need to be repeated. The second rabbit trail is found in Jonah. One of the small groups, the Halls, has recently finished a study in Jonah. I think you led that, Benji? Took turns, okay. I'm sure they had some discussion about mercy in that book, as it was Jonah's dissatisfaction with his knowledge that the Lord was a merciful God that called him to run from God's command in the first place. He did not want God to be merciful to the Ninevites. We're God's chosen people, 
They're not deserving of your favor. It's certainly not your mercy. But God most assuredly was merciful to them. How extraordinary was it that God should save a complete city of 120,000 persons living in spiritual darkness. It goes back to the work of a sovereign God having compassion on whom I will have compassion. But there is another aspect of God's mercy here. Since Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, God has sent numerous revivals to nation after nation. These have been real. The history of them is clear. But where are those nations now, spiritually speaking? Most, including our own, have turned their backs to the ways of God and turned to the world, rejecting both God and Christ, trusting instead to philosophy, science, and the opinions of men as their linchpin of existence, claiming that God is not relevant and at worst disinterested. The Ninevites were later destroyed. Had they remained faithful to the God of the Hebrews, it would seem inconsistent for God to allow that to happen. Perhaps we may suggest that here is a pattern that the Lord will so deal with the nations that have been at various times turned to him and then fallen away when we consider the judgment that God is ultimately going to bring. This does not mean that the Lord God could do otherwise should he so desire. It is just that the destruction of Nineveh seems like a portent of coming destruction, the reality of which is clearly foretold in the scriptures. Our Lord restored Israel again and again, but he will not withhold his wrath forever. We now return to mercy. What may we glean from the restoration of Israel so many times? Is it not a clear depiction of a holy God showing faithfulness, long-suffering, patience, and mercy in a palpable way? We see the same Lord extend to each of us that abundant measure of mercy and grace on a daily basis. And what prompts the Lord to deal so kindly with us? We find in passages from the English Standard Version, the ESV, and the King James Version, that the steadfast love of God and his manifold mercies are inextricably linked together in his dealings with us on a day-by-day and sometimes moment-by-moment occurrence. When Jesus stated that we are to give one another 70 times 7 each day, did he not indicate that such was to be a necessity of the Lord's dealings with us? Whenever we are honest and real about our walk, at least in private before the Lord, don't we discover how weak our efforts have been? Yet he forgives. Yet he restores. Yet he puts on us back on the pathway of his will that he wants us to follow. Mercy is indeed pour out, poured out upon us because he loves us. There is no greater demonstration of that than Jesus going to the cross. Remember John 3.16? He knows that we are but dust and struggle to stay in his will of being aware of him constantly throughout the day, which Mike spoke of earlier. An impossibility for us, but Christ did it perfectly. Even as Israel was in captivity 70 years, does not our sin too often hold us captive as well? Yet as they were restored, so also are we. 
His is the refiner's work in Israel and in us, tempered always by his steadfast love and mercy. In Zechariah 7, we find the description of why he scattered Israel. He told them to treat one another well. And if you read it, you'll go, ah, here's the golden rule found in the Old Testament. But they refused. And then in verse 12, they read, we read, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts that had been sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So he scattered them as with a whirlwind among all the nations. Then in chapter 8, immediately following of, of Zechariah, the Lord of hosts says, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Then he continues by telling them how he's going to restore them. Was it not for his love and mercy toward them who would prompt him to do such? And this is the same Lord with whom we deal. We fail, and that too often, for we try to live our Christian life in our own strength. What we should be are those who abide, drawing our strength from him, being the branches supported and nourished by the vine, who is Christ in us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Power to spare as we rest in his work in us. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 reads, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We are touching on the mystery here. God, creator, making us to exist through Christ, forming us to be. When Christ was put to sleep and death in scripture is likened to sleep, the Lord God took from his side a rib and from his own life he formed a helpmeet for him, a bride. From our Messiah's actual death, we have the same God from Christ's riven side forming Christ's bride, the church, the body of Christ now fitted with all we need to serve him. And it is prompted by the same measure of love and mercy that he has poured out since the beginning of creation. I read somewhere, I regret I did not record the source, that mercy without justice undermines order. Let me repeat that. Mercy without justice undermines order. If all we do is offer platitudes to wrongdoing, Oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. It'll be all right. Just slap the hand. Without ever having justice brought to bear, we then see the erosion of moral, civic, and religious order. Similarly, justice without mercy is harsh and unyielding and is to be reviled by both God and human alike. So we find in our gracious Lord mercy, steadfast love, and justice. In us, there is never found a perfect expression of these traits, or if you will, behaviors. Whereas in our triune God, these are but some of his attributes, along with many others, and are always in perfect balance. While we can never have a perfect understanding of all the factors of any incident, God knows every mitigating detail and can then render perfect judgment which is why he declares, vengeance is mine, 
I will repay. Thus it behooves us, when mercy in our lives is poorly received or missing altogether in the affairs of others, whether given or received, give it to the Lord to sort it out perfectly. Mike alluded to this when he said, if there's somebody you know that has stuff against you, but if they don't share it, they have exhibited mercy toward you. There is almost a, dare I say it, an interchangeability with regard to mercy and steadfast love. We find this jumping out at us when we look at how these terms are found in many cases when comparing them in the ESV and the King James. I happily discovered this while preparing for today, and as some of you may know, I spent quite a few years in the King James before going with the ESV. As a result of those years, many of the verses considered here have come to mind from the King James Version text. I pursued them in both and was surprised to find them used as mercy in the King James and steadfast love in the ESV. Some examples. Psalm 103.11 in the ESV, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. In the King James, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Exodus 20, verse 6, and this is in the giving of the second of the Ten Commandments in the ESV, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments in the King James, and showing mercies unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. First Chronicles 16, 34 in the ESV, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. King James, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his mercy endureth forever. There are probably 15 or 20 verses that will interchange this way. They may differ because of the base texts used for the two translations, but I'm not a bit exercised by the difference. I personally like both renderings. Only a perfect and holy God could make both of these right at the same time. I am in awe that the living God loves me, and I know he does so because he declares it to be so and proved it at Calvary. When he allows us to see even a glimpse of how much mercy he bestows, it should put us on our knees with thankfulness. I cannot separate the two, the greatness of both his steadfast love and mercy. The measure of distinction for me is too fine. I know that I am a recipient of both. And my life has been forever changing. There are parameters around mercy. We'll start with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This strikes at our very hearts. How much have I dispensed of late? How much mercy have I dispensed of late? How high on the list of things to be important is the level of mercy I practice? And not just to say I was merciful to so-and-so, but to, from the heart, practice being merciful to others. To your wife, to your husband, your children, your siblings, your parents, your friends, to complete strangers. Is that not also loving one another? even your neighbor. They should make us pause and consider our walk carefully. 
We also find in James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Has not that become true in each of our lives? His mercy, brought by, bought by Christ's work, stands between us and absolute condemnation. Our eyes should open wide when reading this verse. How imperative it becomes that we demonstrate mercy one to another, and that right often. Judgment is easy and sometimes lightning fast and often wrong. Do we really have all the information to judge rightly? It is far better to be rich in mercy one to another. Luke 150. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Our fear of God has been tempered by the love and mercy we have received. We know how often we fail, but he in mercy continually lifts us up. And he does so with every successive generation. For he is God in every moment of time and every aspect of life, even when we fail to perceive it. There are certainly times when we are slow to come before him, reluctant to be laid bare, even times when we feel so unworthy to come into his presence by perhaps some sin or an anger you cannot release, and then the light dawns that there's no other place to be except before a God who is rich in mercy, indeed the great physician who heals all our wounds and restores us to himself. Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath fitted for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? We who are without hope have had poured into us mercy beyond any expectation. God's steadfast love and mercy have been fully and completely exhibited in Christ's finished work to the satisfaction of God's justice, yes, even to our salvation and subsequent sanctification as God continues to make us useful in this world and to prepare us for a world to come so that gratitude and praise should absolutely fill out our lives and pour out to others. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The natural man, dead in his sins, does not seek to do this. But should he try to do it, it becomes a work of his own doing and has no merit with the living God. We cannot even start doing this until we present our bodies as not our own, but bought by Christ. And having presented ourselves, seek first the kingdom of God. Thank you, Mary, for playing that this morning. And find the will of God daily, at which point God receives it as true worship. We find in First and Second Timothy, Second John and Jude, the greeting of grace, mercy, and peace. As grace has a general aspect, like letting the world continue while it is so repugnant in God's sight, so also mercy applies. 
In a greeting such as we find in these four books, it is used more as a benediction, as it is directed to the saved, that they may be further instructed in the ways of the Lord. Also, like grace, mercy takes on rich and very personal meaning when we find it working so clearly in each of our lives. Then we find peace also included. Because the Lord deals with us so extravagantly with grace and mercy, we are visited with a deep and abiding peace. That peace is broken when we break fellowship with the Lord failing to be obedient, or even outright rebellion. It does not always have to be in visible ways either. We may have heart issues, battles going on inside the heart and mind that we know displease the God of the universe who knows our every thought even more, knows what events of and the multitude of circumstances in our lives influence what we think, do, and say better than we do. He alone knows how to deal with our failings, the dark times when we keenly feel our unworthiness before a holy God. I don't think that I would be amiss in saying that many of us have found ourselves there at one time or another. I know the truth of it in my own life, I must sadly confess. But, and this is a truly magnificent but, God, our Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will not let us go. He is the Savior who only spoke truth and told us, Of all that the Father gave me, I lost not one. Yes, we face troubles, some of our own making, some from outside, some from our constant enemy. And what are these to the Lord but factors that he can and will use to refine those he loves? For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And praise God. We are those who can and will cry out to the Lord for mercy when our hearts and hands fail us. We can be as the tax collector beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Lord sees it all. And the Lord Jesus is interceding on our behalf because he said he would. And not a single word of the Lord will ever fall to the ground. We can put complete trust in every line of scripture because we know that every word of it is true and it contains everything we need for direction in the lives we live in this temporary, soon to meet its condemnation, world. Hebrews 4, 6. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Lord is not unavailable. He hears our every cry He knows our every need, and one thing is certain. Our Lord wants us to be forthright when we come before him, even those times when all we can do is weep before him. He knows exactly where our hearts are at every moment, and he despises those whose lips are far from him. Proverbs 28, 13, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It is not just the confession of wrongdoing that the Lord wants. He wants to turn from that wrongdoing, to truly repent and truly forsake the wrongdoing that is in our life. And when we do, we obtain mercy and are restored. I heard this many years ago, 
and joyfully testify to the truth of it. I can't remember where I heard it or who said it, but I repeat it to you today. You cannot come into the presence of God and come away unchanged. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, seeking mercy for the nation. The veil is now rent. We can go before him at any moment of the day and cry out for mercy, and he will abundantly pardon. When we do so with a broken heart and sometimes a broken spirit, he is and always will be the one who restores. We can cling to Psalm 51:17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And when that happens, as it does in each one of us, his children, we find that he does indeed heal, comfort, and place us back on the path from which we have wandered. This is the work that he is doing in our lives, where his deep mercy and steadfast love are fitting us for his kingdom, where we shall one day indeed praise, worship, and enjoy him forever. Amen.